Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Psalms. We are in Psalm 14 this morning. Psalm 14, pick it up in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would look down on us this morning, that you would continue to bless our gathering together, that you would bless your word, and we pray that you do more than just look down upon us, but that you would also be with us, and that you would work your word into our hearts and mature us and make us more like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You and I have a lot of different things that we are interested in. Some of those things we share. Some of those things we perhaps differ. Your interests might compete with mine. And even within ourselves, we have sort of competing interests. There's something that we are interested in, but then it competes with something else. And sometimes... We care about the interests of others. Sometimes we do things or say things in order to generate or elicit the interests of others, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way, and sometimes we look for the wrong kind of interest in others. The Bible has a lot to say about our interests and whether or not they are godly. But more importantly than that, the Bible has a lot to say about what God's interests are. And while the scriptures do teach wonderfully and gloriously that God takes a careful interest in the lives of his people individually and personally, however, that isn't really the focus of the sermon this morning, but rather the focus is much more broadly. The passage, I think, tells us is that God has a particular interest And that is an interest in the world of men and the affairs of men. So as we look to the passage this morning, the one one thing that we see, firstly, is while God certainly has this interest in the world of men, man, on the other hand, has an indifference towards God. And it's an egregious indifference. The passage begins by telling us that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Now, Thinking about this passage, 
And for those who might be familiar with that kind of statement, you might immediately think that this person is, that this is describing an atheist, somebody who says that there is no God, that there is no divine creator, that there is no divine mover. And the passage certainly speaks to that, but the passage isn't a theological, this isn't a theological statement, and it's not even a philosophical statement, but rather it is an ethical statement. It's a moral statement. And you can see that by continuing to read the rest of the passage, and it focuses on what this person is and what this person does. Right? They do abominable deeds. They do not do any good. They devour God's people. They turn aside. So it's an ethical statement. And in taking this way, it actually broadens the definition of atheism. What this passage really gets at is what exactly does the person's life show? Right, if you were to analyze a person's life, what could we say about this person? Does a fear of God sort of exude from their life? Or, do you, or instead, do you see a sort of a, a godlessness? In fact, Romans 1 actually tells us that there is no such thing as an atheist. That is somebody who actually believes that there is no God. Because Romans 1 tells us that man knows the truth about God, but he suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. He digs it down deep in sin and unrighteousness. In other words, everybody knows that there is a God that should suppress it. What we see here is an antithesis, or the very opposite of biblical wisdom. As we, if you know the Proverbs, you've been following along prior to this and going to the book of Ecclesiastes, then you know that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. And the opposite of that is to not walk in the fear of the Lord. And so this is the disobedient child who has parents, and parents communicate clearly the expectations, what they desire the child to do, what they command the child to do, but the child is unruly and disobedient and disregards the respect and the authority of his parents. This is like the parable of the wicked servant that Jesus tells in the Gospels, the wicked servant who in his master's absence decides to squander his master's stuff and drinks himself to drunkenness and treats all the other servants in the house rudely until the master unexpectedly returns. This is a description of a person with a disregard and an indifference towards his highest authority, namely God. It tells us that he says this in his heart, not referring to the vital organ of the human body, but in his inner man, in his inner being, his whole will and inclination sort of give this, this aroma of godlessness. So if you've ever woken up in the morning and have gone down to the kitchen and sort of had that experience like, something stinks in here. And you're trying to figure out what it is, and you open the trash can, and there it is, the source of the stench. Right? Even though it has a lid on or it's in the drawer, you think it's contained, but somehow the smell still gets out. It cannot help but give off this smell. 
And so it is, just as Jesus says in the Gospels, that out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. Everything about your life, everything that you do, everything that you say is a reflection of what is already in your heart. So the fool says in his heart there is no God, and they do all these things because this is essentially what is in his heart, a godlessness. There is no fear of God. Psalm 10.4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts, there is no God. It is in pride that man says that there is no God. It is a a statement of self-exaltation to say that there is no God. It tells us this is what the fool does. And defining the definition of a fool actually is quite interesting. I mean, the word fool, depending on the context, it can mean futile, worthless, a good-for-nothing. It can mean an unbeliever. Now, the Hebrew word for fool, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, then you'll, you'll like this. But the Hebrew word for fool is actually the word nabal. Some of you are probably familiar with Nabal, who is actually a character in the story of the Old Testament. First Psalm or First Samuel 25 tells us about Nabal. First Samuel 25, verse 1, then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man and Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So David and his men, fighting and warring in the surrounding regions, David sends, King David sends some men, at that time not king, but David sends some men down to Nabal, who had plenty of things, he had plenty of land, was plenty rich, says, we've been fighting, we've been warring, we've been protecting people and villagers in the surrounding lands, and no harm has come to your land. No pillagers have come because of our protection. We are in need of some provision. Would you graciously, would you provide some things for me and my men? And Nabal treats them with contempt. He runs them out. He doesn't care about David and what his men have done for him. So in this sense, Nabal was a foolish, foolish man. It tells us that Nabal was also a Calebite. That is, he was descendant from Caleb, and Caleb was one of the godly men who, with Joshua, saw the promised land and tried to encourage the people, let us go and take possession of the land because God has gone before us and God has promised to give it to us. So Caleb is this example that we ought to follow. He's a godly man, a man who walks in the fear of the Lord, somebody that the Scriptures hold highly as somebody that we should imitate. And what I think is telling us here and telling us that Nabal was a Calebite is to help us to see, look how far the tree or the apple has fallen from the tree. Nabal is nothing like his forefather Caleb. In fact, Caleb would probably be ashamed of Nabal. So it seems to be that God considers such people that Psalm 14 describes as Nabalian. It tells us they, they, they do this, they are corruptible, they do abominable deeds, they, they, the plural. And it seems to tell us that the collective many is characterized by the singular person of Nabal. 
This is whom they represent. The passage tells us about the nature of man. Genesis 6, 11-12 tells us of the gravity of this corruption, which is the nature of man. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Three times it tells us how corrupt the earth was. And if you continue to read in Genesis 6, then you know the gravity of this corruption, which is that God decides to wipe out the entire planet, save one man and his family, because of this corruption. Judges, Judges 2.19 tells us of the means of this corruption, But whenever the judge died, they turned back, the people of God turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. How did they corrupt themselves? By going after other gods. Going after other idols. And for us, it means it's going after anything that has our attention and love that should be ultimately, first and foremost, be directed towards God. To anything that comes in competition towards God is considered an idol in the human heart. 2 Timothy 3.8 tells us that those who are corrupt oppose the truth. 2 Peter 1.3-5 tells us that this corruption in the human heart comes through sinful desire. Sin is a spoiling of what is good or the corruption of what is good. It's like taking clear water and polluting, in, polluting it with oil. It is the staining of a clean white shirt is what sin is. Or it's when food becomes rotten. In, their, in his book, Against God and Nature, the author writes, Nothing about sin is its own. All its power, persistence, and plausibility are stolen goods. Sin is not really an entity, but a spoiler of entities. That is the essence of sin. It takes what is good and it spoils it. It corrupts it. It taints it. In addition to that, the passage also tells us of the actions of somebody who is Nabalian in his heart. Abominable, turning, devouring, not doing good. The word abomination means desecration or an abhorrence. Ezekiel 16 gives us, I think, a vivid picture of what this abomination is. It tells us, at the head of every street, talking to God's people, at the head of every street you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and by multiplying your whoring. This beauty that God's people had was a God-given beauty, a splendor about them. This was... God's covenanting with them. It was God making them prosperous. It is God giving them these material blessings and instead using the beauty that God has given to them and covenanting with other foreign pagan gods and nations. Nabalian man desecrates his own glory and a glory that comes inherent in him because he's made in the image of God. And that glory is intended to ultimately reflect the glory of God horizontally to the world. But man desecrates his own glory 
by running after lovers of his soul to other idols. And this then leads to doing abominable deeds that are contrary to God and nature. This is like King David and Bathsheba. King David, who is given by God prestige, status, and honor, and wealth, and authority, in order to be a blessing to God's people, and in a moment of weakness, instead uses it to take another man's wife and have that man murdered. It is like being given a day off by your spouse. You've been working so hard this month. Don't worry about the kids. You go relax, go watch a movie, go do something, enjoy. I'll take care of things at home. You go off and relax. Instead of using that as a wonderful, precious gift by your spouse, it's using that instead to hook up with another lover. Sort of the idea here by an abominable act and that they're turning, they turn. As verse 32, 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They're turning aside, then it's intended to tell us that there is a narrow path the narrow path of God's word, the narrow path of God's commandments, the narrow path of walking in the fear of the Lord. But it tells us that in his nature, man deviates from that path and turns a different way. Right? In the story of The Hobbit by J.R. Tolkien, the Hobbit and, his other, and the other guys who are with him, they enter the Mirkwood wilderness and they're given specific instructions to follow the path before them. Otherwise, if they don't, they'll get lost and not be able to return to the path. And over time in the wilderness, in the darkness, they begin to see things in the distance, these lights, these festivities, and they go there, and it all disappears. And over time, as this happens more than once, they all get lost and unable to return to the narrow path. And this is what man does in the murkwood forests of the world. Have deviated from the beaten path that God has created, turned aside, and now unable to turn back and find the path that God has created. And it tells us that they do not do good. It's not that man cannot do any good. Praise God that not everybody is as evil or as sinful as they could be. But how God defines what is good and how man defines what is good is two different things. The world might define good as how does this improve another person? Does this act leave a person better than they were before as a way to sort of define what is good or what is a good deed or what is a good act? And certainly that is good. But when we think about God's definition of good, he goes further than that. When it comes to what a good deed is, a good deed has its eye first on God. So in this sense, because Nabalian man in his heart is a godless person, his good deeds are not really seen as good deeds in the eyes of the Lord because he does not do them with an eye towards God. And it tells us also that he devours tells us that he has his eyes set on a particular target, and that is God's people, upon the righteous. They don't call upon the Lord. So you think of 
the word says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Right? Rather than looking to God and calling upon God, instead they see God's people as sort of their sustenance, that they feed on the persecution of the righteous. And the New Testament promises us this. Jesus promises his people that they will become targets of the world. In John 7, verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify testify about it that its works are evil. Matthew 5, 11, in the Beatitudes says, Blessed are you when others revile you and curse you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, Jesus says, on my account. Rejoice to be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It certainly isn't the only mark, but the Bible seems to say that one of the defining marks of a person with a Nabalian nature is that they persecute God's people. The passage continues, and it tells us of man's ignorance. They have no knowledge. They do not understand. And this isn't the kind of ignorance that is excusable, like when you don't have information that somebody failed to relate to you. But rather, this is an inexcusable ignorance. This is an information that you already know, but you fail to act on. And there's plenty of information, there's plenty of signs that point to the glory of God, that there is a heavenly creator. Romans 1 tells us this, that the creation itself tells us that there is a divine creator. Jesus himself was assigned to the world, God sending his own son into the world to bear the punishment for sinners. That itself is intended to be a a tangible sign to the world, a vivid sign to the world that there is a God. And the church today as well. Every church everywhere in all places that preaches the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ is a sign to the world that there is a God in the heavens above. But man ignores the stop signs. They continue to run right through the intersection. They ignore the traffic lights. They ignore the caution signs. It's not that they cannot see them. They just choose to ignore them. So at the end of the day, what is this passage telling us? What is it essentially getting at? It's telling us about... The man in his heart who says that there is no God, when his action says that there is no God. And the reason that they continue in these ways that are abominable to the Lord is because he, he lives his life as if God will do nothing. We already know, according to Romans 1, that man knows that there is a God, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. But the problem that we see in Psalm 14 that it's trying to think to tell us or teach us is that while man knows that there is a God, he believes that man will not do anything. I can do what I please. I can do what I want, whether it's to myself or to others, because God will not judge, because God will not condemn, God will not come through, God will not do anything. He is disinterested in what the world does and what I do. But this is the essence of Nabalian nature. This is what Nabal assumed when he ran off David's men. He thought, David's not going to do anything. His men are not going to come back. They're going to come after me. But if you continue to read the passage of 1 Samuel, oh, he did. David was angry, and he gathered his men. He was going to come against Nabal 
until his wife, his wise and discerning wife, intervened on Nabal's behalf. And at the end of the story, God took care of Nabal anyway. But we see also in the passage that God isn't a disinterested God. It tells us that God looks down from heaven on the children of man. God does take notice, but oftentimes when we see this kind of attention that God gives to the world, it's not always a favorable attention. You see it in Babel, that people constructing a tower to exalt themselves above God, above God, and God comes down from heaven and disperses the people. God took an interest in the world when he saw the corruption of the world and brought about the flood of his judgment. We see it in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities who corrupted themselves, and God took such an interest in them that he went with his angels to see for himself the corruption and leveled the place in the fury of his fire. This passage is written by a psalmist who knows that God is not disinterested in the affairs of men, despite man's indifference towards God. Instead, secondly, what we see in the passage is God's vigilant interest in man. And towards the end, the passage seems to take a prophetic turn. It tells us, there they are, that is, the man with this Nabalian nature. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So we see that God is interested in the affairs of men, and he takes a particular interest in some. He takes a great and particular interest in a specific people, and that is those who have a special righteousness given them by faith in Jesus Christ. It is those that he is most interested in, and they have nothing to fear because God is with them. God is their refuge. The people with an abelian nature, on the other hand, will be deathly afraid when they realize that God isn't actually disinterested, but he is oh, so very interested in what happens in the world, specifically with regards to his people, that one day man will be utterly and terribly shocked when they come to discover this, like Robin Hood did in that story when he comes to realize that the man before him that he treated harshly was none other than King Richard in disguise. And we see how much God is interested in the world, as I said earlier, when in the sending of his own son. God was so interested in the affairs of men that he sent his son into the world to live this life without sin and yet go to the cross to be crucified to the cross. And there at the cross, God intends to show the world two things. One is the judgment of God upon sin, that when we look at Jesus Christ, we see what sin deserves. And what the judgment is for those who fail to acknowledge God and acknowledge His Son as Savior and give His life to that Savior. But at the same time, we also see the great salvation of God in the person of Christ as we look to the cross. Not only do we see what our sins deserve, but we also see the one who has paid the penalty that our sins have deserved. So when we look to the cross, we see Jesus And we're reminded that Jesus absorbed the justice and the wrath of God that my sins deserved. And this is the salvation that is possible and offered to all those who place their trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in the person of Christ, we see how interested God is in the world. And the passage then goes on to talk about the preservation of the righteous. But they would shame the plans of the poor. The Napoleon person would try to shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. The poor person in the passage is the same as the person who is of Jacob, who is of Israel, the person who is of the generation of the righteous. They're all the same people. Right? If you are here and you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then that is you. It is talking about you. The New Testament teaches us that God's people today, through faith in Jesus Christ, is the new Jacob, is the new Israel, is the people who are the generation of the righteous. The similar idea that Jesus says in the Beatitudes, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That they, that is the world, cannot shame the plan of God's people. That is God's plan for his people. They can try to shame and bring to nothing God's plans for his people, whether it's by ridicule, whether it's by shame, whether it's by lawsuits, whether it's by persecution. But the promise of this passage is that try as the world might, man cannot stop God's plan for his people because his plans are like a powering locomotive that cannot be stopped. And man can try to stop the locomotive with his own hands, but is unable to. He's like an ant, utterly powerless to stop God's plans for his people. Psalm 33.10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Job 42.2 I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse 7, it says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. It doesn't say if, but it says when. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let God's people rejoice. The deliverance of God come from Zion. Zion was, was understood to be the place of Jerusalem, where the temple of God dwelt, where people would come to worship the Lord and come before the presence of God. But Zion is also intended to be representative, the throne room of God, where he looks down from heaven, the very place where Jesus came from to bring a deliverance for those who would trust in him. And the prayer is that God would restore the fortunes of his people. What does this mean? In Jeremiah 30, verse 3, it says, For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Jeremiah 29, 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, 
and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The people of God in the Old Testament, this would have meant being restored to their place. It's going back to the promised land, the Canaan, the place that was described as the place flowing with milk and honey, the place where the people of God could be the people of God, enjoy material blessings, enjoy prosperity, enjoy independence, a place where they could actually live in the presence of God, a sort of, you could say, a sort of Eden on earth. And this is what we pray for today. But we also pray, God, restore our fortunes. It's the same prayer as, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth, on, on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your salvation. What we're essentially praying for is an eternal Eden where we can once again walk with God. This is what we long for. This is what we pray for. A place where saints will be forever, as Jonathan Edwards would say, happified. A place where there's this perpetual happification of the saints. This bliss, this wonderful joy, a forever enduring paradise where the glory of God is the sun itself. This is what we pray for. Whether or not you realize that when we pray, oftentimes the Lord's Prayer intended for us to hunger, to stir in us an appetite for God's kingdom to come, to bring this about. Lord, restore the fortunes of your people. Lord, bring Eden on earth. Let us walk with you again. That's what we pray for. That's what we long for. So by way of conclusion, let me leave you with a few quick things. God certainly takes a great interest, as we see in this passage, hopefully. God takes great interest in the affairs of men. He takes a particular interest in his people. And so we also ought to take great interest in the things of God, particularly in God's salvation. And with that, first, we should pray. We should pray. And even as Christians, we have competing interests. Right? God, in his grace and his mercy, he dispenses to us wonderful blessings that we get to enjoy here, now, in this life. But at the same time, right, the true Christian has this, these competing interests, this, this agonizing, this warring within himself or herself, like the Apostle Paul did. Should I remain and be with God's people, encourage God's people, and strengthen God's people, or should I depart and be with Christ, which is far better? But he's Hard press between the two. This hard pressedness is something that should be in all of us. While we enjoy our time here on earth to the degree that we can, right, we want to be effective. We want to be effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we want to remain here. We want to love our families well. We want to encourage our families to continue to pursue the Lord and to know Jesus Christ. But at the same time, boy, do I desire to be with Christ. This internal competition that you have no idea what to do with, but it's a good wrestling it's a good wrestling, it's a good prayer to have because it helps you to hang on to things a little more loosely, especially if you have an attachment to particular sins. 
to continue to pray that God's kingdom would come to be in that place where you can dwell with God, unimpeded by sin, unimpeded by the world, unimpeded by persecution, unimpeded by the animosity that is in the world, unimpeded by your own sin and flesh. That is a wonderful place to be. And if you continue to pray to that end, you'll foster a really good and healthy warring within yourself where you are enjoying God's gracious blessings in your life now, but at the same time eagerly longing to be with Christ and for His kingdom to come. And in order to be much more attached to that home and less attached to this one. So we pray to that end with this homesickness. Secondly, we expect, John 15, 18, this expectation is with regards to the persecution of the world. John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Right, and this is the reality that we have to face. Right, as long as we continue to stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the world's general view towards us is one of animosity and hatred. So Jesus tells us this is how it is, and we should expect this. Do not be surprised by it. You should just consider yourself, wherever you go, whatever you do, no matter what season you find yourself in, to consider yourself as sort of an unwanted guest at a party. Where people are looking at you like, who's this? Why is he here? What are they doing here? Who invited this person? But it's how it is for us. And even then, the Bible still expects us to continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Despite the hostility that we might experience, there's expectation that we continue to proclaim the gospel. That we should pray for the boldness to continue to preach the gospel. As long as man is willing to hear, that we will continue to evangelize and to preach because this is our commandment, because it's what we're called to do. So that man might be saved and lastly, is to take heart. Take heart. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus rose again from the dead, ascended on high, is seated at the right hand of God, and it tells us, in places like in the book of Ephesians, that everything has been made subservient to Jesus. All the nations are under his rule. Even the principalities, the things that we cannot hear or see with our own eyes, even that spiritual realm has been laid to the foot of Jesus Christ. All things are subservient to Christ Jesus the King. Jesus has conquered the world. He took it head on 
He faced the animosity of the world, and he beat the world. And because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you have this union with Christ, and so his victory is also your victory as well. When Joshua was going into the new land, the promised land, strange territory, new enemies, new battles to face, Moses said, be strong and be very courageous. Not because you have numbers, not because you have tactical advantages, not because you have weapons, not because you know how to fight, but because God has on before you and because God is with you. Christians are strong and courageous because God or Christ has already gone before them and because they, got, they have a God who is with them. In the milled work or Mirkwood wilderness of the world, Jesus has already created a path for us to walk on. He's already done it. He's laid the path. He's uprooted the vines of sin. He's cut down the trees of his enemies. He's removed the boulders of distraction that stand in the way, and he has bridged the gap that sin and death has caused between us and God in order to carve out for us a narrow path that leads to himself. And this is why he's given us his word, so that we might know what the narrow path is and so that we might continue to walk in it. His promise is that we continue to walk in the narrow path and God is with you. And he who has saved you, who holds you in his right hand, none will be able to snatch you out of his hand. So in that sense, we can be strong and courageous God is with us. Time will not allow us to consider God's particular interest in us individually, personally. And the passage doesn't lend itself to being that specific. But let it be said that the reason God does take great interest in our own personal and individual lives is because he has a vigilant interest in the preservation of his people broadly and corporately for his eternal glory. And it's because of this broader interest that God pays careful attention to us individually. So knowing this, let us together take heart. For God's plans for his people will not be put to shame. They will not be thwarted. Because nothing can stop God's plans for his people. Let's pray. Lord, it says in Isaiah, there is no other God like you. There is no God besides you. And God, we are th- just thankful to have a God like you with us. Lord, this passage describes what we once were. And we worship you because this is no longer who we are. Help us, Lord, to stand in the gospel of Christ. Help us to continue to boldly proclaim the gospel. Despite the hateful attention that they may draw towards us, help us to have the courage, to have the boldness. And Lord, Increase our longing 
for your kingdom to come. Help us to be a people who have just these competing interests in our hearts because we want to be faithful here and now. We want to be faithful stewards of what you have entrusted to us. We want to encourage the saints. We want to love others well. We want to love our families well. And at the same time, we desire to go home and be in the Eden of God. Lord, help us and guide us by your Spirit. We do pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.